Scholars have referred to the book of Romans as the most important book in the most important book in history. Since the Bible is breathed out by the Holy Spirit, it is indeed the most important book on the planet. But it may not be wise to speak of Romans as the Bible's most important book. Perhaps we should not contrast the biblical books this way, but we understand what these scholars mean. Paul's epistle to the Romans soars to cosmic heights in revealing the glories of God's saving work in Christ. Yet, despite all its accolades from scholars through the centuries, the 16th chapter of Romans has not fared as well. Martin Luther famously excluded Romans 16 from his commentary, questioning whether Paul would end so glorious an epistle on such a dull note. Well, we know Martin, so we'll forgive him for that. It's true. The soaring theology is behind us. It's true. The blinding light of Christ's redemptive glories are behind us in some sense now as we come to this last chapter. But think not for a moment that the lights have gone out. As Paul begins to sign off on this 16th chapter, it serves a function in Paul's purpose for the writing of this book. An important function. It also tells us much about the nature of the New Testament church and our calling today as God's people. There is great light here for us as we finish off what might greet us here as simply a list of greetings. But it reveals so much about the mission for which Jesus has united us as a church. And so we look to it with interest. In fact, it is, believe it or not, a bit of a theological battlefield. And that will come out as we work our way through here today. But last week, looking at Paul's revelation of his plans to use the Roman church as a supply station on his way finally to Spain, just reviewing uh, the map here, he said, my journey, he's had three years of journey throughout this region, going as far as Greece to the west. He says, that's where I've been, that's why I've not been able to come to you. He says it in very uh, gracious words, but he basically says, I've been busy. I've been amazingly busy in the work of the gospel. I've not been able to reach you yet, but he then reveals to them his future plan to move from Italy into Spain and to take the gospel there. Being more specific in the immediate, he reminds them, writing from Corinth, that his first task will be to go to Jerusalem. And then, from Jerusalem, his intention is to come back through Rome on his way, ultimately again, then to Spain, whatever route he intended to take, and perhaps by land. Uh, But at any rate, he intends to pass through them. But it's now time for Paul to close the letter. And as he does so, he labors to link believers together so as to strengthen the worldwide web of the gospel enterprise. Observing Paul do this here provides sanctifying profit for us as a church as we think about the work that they are doing, which is the work that we are doing. Now it's our turn. We on the stage as we carry out this mission Observing Paul do this provides then that sanctifying prophet. We notice first of all, in verses 1 and 2, that Paul links Phoebe to the Roman church by commendation. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church of Sencrea. Sencrea is a port city eight miles from Corinth as ancient cities were set up, the major city inland for protection purposes, but a port city connecting that inland city to the world. She was from Sencrea. He is operating here at this point in Corinth. And somewhere along the line, 
He meets Phoebe and indeed ministers with her. He considers Phoebe uh, uh, probably, the, uh, we would consider Phoebe possibly the courier of this letter. We don't know that, that's conjecture, but since she's eight miles from him, there's certainly a likelihood that that's why she's in Rome, perhaps on business as well. She would not have traveled alone, however. She didn't just book a flight on Southwest and get there on her own with her suitcase. Uh, She would have been on dangerous roads for a very long time or in a ship, and it would have been a harrowing journey, and she would not have gone alone. There would have been protection with her, but he commends her particularly. Paul wants to link her to the Roman church. He wants to Do the work of introducing, commending, connecting as they form this web of gospel servants. He wants them to receive her warmly, indeed. Phoebe, he explains, is a noteworthy servant of the church in Sencrea. And this word servant, the Greek word diakonos, we have the word deacon that comes from this word. Was Phoebe then a deacon of the church in Sancria? Well, Paul uses this word 20 times in his writings. Three times it refers to the specific office of deacon, and it's clear in each of those three uses that that's what he's talking about. There's really no question, no one ever has question that he's talking about deacons there. So, most often the word Diakonos is just used more generically of a servant of Christ. Now there are some biblical students and scholars who take this phrase that she is a deacon of the church of Sancria and they really run with it. They go so far as to say something along these lines. Phoebe was a deacon in the church. She carried the letter to Rome. Having carried the letter to Rome, she would have read the letter to the Roman church. Having read the letter to the Roman church, she would have fielded questions about the text and therefore was probably the first preacher of the book of Romans. The Bible thus teaching us here in this verse that men and women share identical leadership roles in the church. This is all the proof that we need. Well, such a reconstruction, of course, depends on one conjectural conclusion after another. It is a string based on conjecture that cannot break down anywhere along the line. There's a lot of blanks that are filled in by this thinking. Uh, It's really driven by an agenda, of course, that's outside the text itself. Nowhere else would such exegesis be done and found acceptable, but here there is certainly an agenda. Paul was anxious not to commend Phoebe as a preacher to the church. That's not what we're to read here. He was anxious, however, for local churches to display the curse-reversing creative order that God designs for them to image as men and women serve side by side in the assembly. This is the thing that so many have no concept of in our day. The idea that a man and a woman wouldn't fulfill precisely the same position and office is seen as nothing more than demeaning to women. That's the only conclusion that people can draw. But thinking of it from Paul's perspective, from a New Testament perspective, there's something far larger going on here, and that is to return to Eden in our churches and to come to the fall and to the curse and to display there a reverse of that curse as the church lives out its life in redemption. And Paul brings this out in great detail in 1 Timothy 2. So I think we can be quite certain on the basis of all of the New Testament and all of Paul's writings that he did not, uh, that his point was not to present Phoebe as the preacher in the church, his intention, or we could say from her side, we can be certain that Phoebe did not gain Paul's commendation by opposing what Paul believed. And what he believed, he laid out quite clearly in other texts such as this, 1 Timothy 2. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. 
Rather, she is to remain quiet in that sense. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Because we naturally read such texts through our cultural lenses, this comes across as troubling in our day. But understanding it from Paul's perspective, he's saying what I just said earlier, that he wants the churches to put on display the curse-reversing order that God intended in Eden. He wants us to reflect God's creative design and to do so in display that is beautiful as man and woman work together and function together within the assembly. But for those who would castigate Paul, they would accuse him of belittling women. Remember what he's doing here. He is saying, I commend Phoebe to you. She is a distinctive servant of God to be honored by the church. He knew Phoebe. He partnered together with her in gospel enterprise. And the apostle commends her as a distinguished servant of the Lord. It reminds us that the New Testament church put men and women side by side in ministry in a way that was unprecedented in the ancient world. This was indeed a new society. A society in which there was a reflection of the creative order, as we see here in 1 Timothy 2, that was not dismissed. And yet, on the other hand, a genuine partnership side by side as we carry on the work of the gospel together. Highly confused in our world, indeed, why some come to Romans 16.1 and turn it into what it by no means could be. So Phoebe, not a preacher, there's nothing that's said that way here, but she did play a vital role in the cause of Christ. Verse 2, indeed, he says, Receive her that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Worthy of the saints. That is, you are to receive her as a sister in Christ. You are to revere her as a beloved sister. House her. Care for her as she arrives in Rome. She indeed has been a patron of many and of myself. What an intriguing phrase. Some commentators twist the word patron here to teach that Phoebe held a position of authority in the early church which being interpreted is she exercised authority in the church over men. But this interpretation serves again an agenda that's willing to read into the text what it wants to see here. She was a patron. What does it mean? What is Paul saying of Phoebe? What he is saying, first, is that Phoebe is a wealthy woman. And he is informing the Roman church that this wealthy woman had invested much of her wealth in the cause of the gospel. In fact, she had even supported the Apostle Paul. Somewhere along the line, Phoebe from Sencrea had met Paul, then from Corinth, and concluded, I need to use my material possessions to help this man carry forward the gospel of Christ. And she provided monetarily to encourage Paul forward, and he said, she has been my patron. She has been my financial supporter, and the financial supporter of many others. And so I call you to receive her, and and I commend her to you. Indwelt by God's Spirit, displaying the grace of giving, Phoebe came to know the joy of investing wealth in eternity. She used her money not as an idol to serve, but as a tool to invest in gospel enterprise. She'd learned how to live. She'd learned how to integrate life with the agenda of God's kingdom. And so again, Paul says, church at Rome, welcome this woman. Respect her. Get to know her. Supply her needs. Draw her in. She is worthy of your partnership in the gospel. 
We remember that the ancient inns were places of deep depravity. They were also places that were extremely dangerous. And so as Christians would travel from place to place, some other Christian had to house them. She's arriving in Rome, and Paul says, put her up. She's a worthy servant. Support her. Well, back to the question, is she a deacon? This is, this is I think here, this word, this single word, is the strongest argument that could be made for a woman as a deacon in the early church. I believe, and it's my own opinion, that 1 Timothy 3 is the strongest support for only male deacons. It's not a major issue in that deacons are invested with leadership responsibilities, but not with the type of authority that would bring into conflict what Paul says about the role of women in the church. So I, I would be willing to pastor a church where there were women deacons, where there was a conviction that that's the teaching of this verse, which I think is the strongest verse. There is also an argument from 1 Timothy 3. So I think I, I would personally be comfortable in a church like that. I would not join a church where women were preaching and exercising authority over men because of the verse that's here before us in part. Uh, it is a matter of fidelity to what God says not to how we design it or think it ought to be or anything like this, but on the matter of deacon, there is much more, I think there should be much more flexibility and a realization that there are good people and good churches that will differ on that point depending on these interpretations. But uh, more on that will come, in fact. But let me move on as I call for charity on that point and fidelity on the point of teaching and exercising authority. That this is what the Lord of the church desires, and it's our responsibility to put that into play, whether it's in season or out of season, to do so faithfully as we see the relationship here between Paul and Phoebe. One of warmth, one of mutual partnership, one of side-by-side -side service in the cause of Christ as he commends her to them. Paul then, in verses 3 through 16 now, we'll cover this more quickly, but he links himself to the Roman church by sending his greetings. So he's linked Phoebe to the Roman church. Now he's going to link himself to the Roman church by drawing out the names of the people that he knows, he's heard about, or has met them elsewhere, and he sends his greetings. Verse 3, greet Prissa and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their home. Paul met this courageous couple, you'll remember, in Corinth on his second missionary journey. They'd been expelled from Rome by the emperor Claudius. They connected to Paul in Corinth. They began to do business together as they made tents and uh, literally put tents together and sold them and had a business there working together in that industry. Then they traveled with Paul to Ephesus. He moved on but left them there at Ephesus and somehow, we don't know how, they got back to Rome, probably at the, after the death of Claudius certainly, and came back to the city. And he commends them to the Roman church as well. There's a deep bond then between Paul and these precious fellow workers. Perhaps it was at the riot at Corinth that they risked their life for him. Somehow they saved him from his persecutors. And there's a deep connection. So they were probably along with Phoebe, and I think likely the reason these three are mentioned first, the most fervent supporters of Paul in the Roman church. Remember, he wants to use them. I think in the best sense of the term, but he wants to use them as a supply station to get to Spain. And as he looks at that, he's calling upon the church, seeking to make connections there, and draws upon these, two, these three individuals that he knows well. And true to form, Prissa and Aquila house a church in their home. They too show some evidence of significant wealth as they house a church. Houses uh, in that time, very commonly for normal people, one to two rooms. And they, they largely were built to the size that you could sleep in them. That was it. As long as people could lay down in them overnight, that was about all the size that you needed and had the money for. That was the normal house. 
to be able to house a church would be impossible in the average home. So, so these individuals have some level of wealth. By, by looking at their trade, by looking at their travel, by looking at this reference, they're using their wealth to advance the cause of Christ. They are housing the church of Jesus, and Paul commends them for that and sends his greetings along those lines. And we think of Priscilla and Aquila using their wealth to advance the cause of Christ. I want to talk specifically to you who are young people. You don't have a job yet. You don't know what your career is going to be. Or perhaps uh, you're at an age where you're struggling with that. You are working. You do have a job. But you don't know where you're headed in life. Let me say a few things about the pursuit of wealth. First of all, there is no virtue in being wealthy. There's no virtue in that. There is virtue in being content. And that is the primary focus. To be content with nothing, just the basic needs, to be content with great wealth. And the discontent with wealth can be just as tempting as the discontent in poverty. So contentment is what we're aiming for with money. If you, young people, if you set out to be rich, if becoming wealthy is your driving ambition in life, you will pierce your soul full of holes. When we determine to become wealthy, we calibrate our souls to disaster. We set money up as God and we bow down. Don't do that. Young people, do not serve money. Serve Christ. Determine that now. He will be my Lord, not money. Having said that, I think it's just as wrong to serve poverty, to pursue poverty. You might object and say, oh, who plans to be poor? It just happens, right? Tough circumstances. I don't have the smarts or the skills. Things don't work out. Nobody chooses to be poor. Well, some people actually do. If you live in poverty, if you're living in poverty now, love God and serve Him in poverty. God intends for you to glorify His name in poverty by your earnest dependence upon Him. You've got to walk day by day depending on the Lord to provide your needs because there's not a lot of resources there. Love God in that. And display your love for God by walking in this life in poverty with joy. Rejoicing in your relationship with Christ. If God wants you to be poor, be the happiest poor person on the planet. The happiest poor person that anyone around you has ever seen. And thank God. But if you are headed toward poverty because of poor planning, of lazy work habits, you may be sacrificing one of life's greatest opportunities. In fact, I'd suggest that you probably are. When God gives you more money than you need to live on, He gives you the opportunity to invest resources in the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a way to spread Jesus' truth freely with no money attached. But in the global, worldwide web of gospel enterprise, we need resources. This is the apostle of Jesus Christ asking for resources. He's saying this isn't going anywhere without financial support. I need your support. He's saying to the Roman church, that's one reason he's writing this letter. I've got to have support to get this done. I can't proclaim the gospel of Christ. I can't teach God's word to his people and provide my own way. It takes more resources than one individual can produce. Now, obviously, there's much to fill in there. Some individuals can on what calling is theirs, but not where Paul is. And I think, young people, 
One of the dangers of our culture is the teaching that what you must do above all else is discover your passion. Find your passion and then do that. And so many theoretically parents are saying to you, if your passion is underwater basket weaving, if it's traveling the globe with a backpack and a shower every two weeks whether you need it or not, if that's your passion, go for it, honey. You've got to find yourself. I'm overstating it, but let me say in opposition, you need to get a job. You need to get to work. You need to begin to develop skills and gain financial resources as ably as you can. Set this idea aside that I've got to find my perfect way, my perfect passion, and I'll never be happy unless I discover it. I might be looking for it at age 45 as I play video games in mom's basement. But I can't find my passion. Get a job. Get out there and get work. I'm talking to you who are 12, okay? I'm not addressing anybody that I'm rebuking. But get a job. And if you're 45 playing video games, my apologies for talking to you publicly, but let's talk privately later because I don't know who you are. And I'm sure you're mad at me right now. But it's not because money is God. It's because money is a tool we need as God's people to carry forward the gospel to the ends of the earth. It's going to need resources, and we need all of us investing in that. So there's two sides here, isn't there? Two elements. It's getting the money, and then it's relating to it properly to move it around for the cause of Christ. And I'm hitting the first here, particularly with you young people. But see this, money is a tool, it's a resource to advance the cause of Christ. It's not a God to worship. It's not there so that you can indulge whatever passion and desire you may have. It's there to advance the cause of Jesus. And there is a way of enjoying it and using it for self appropriately. The apostle himself says that in 1 Timothy 6. But... Let's see wealth for what it is, and let's get it as a tool and an opportunity to serve Christ. All right, back on to the line. Verse 5. Eponidas, we've mentioned him, the first convert in Asia. That's the province of the Roman Empire. Greet Mary, verse 6, who has worked hard for you. It's a great line. How Mary's reputation reached Paul, we don't know, but she's commended as a hard worker. Note that. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles. All right, screeching breaks yet again. Here we go. And we'll get to the second half of this chapter a lot faster than the first, but the problems come in here, the, the differences of opinion come here at the beginning. Let me lay this out for you briefly, and I think we need to consider it. They're kinsmen, that means they're Jews. Those who read the Bible through the glasses of feminist ideology assure us of two things. Junia was a woman, and Junia was an apostle. Part of the problem comes with the name itself. It's like Chris, Terry. Uh, is that a man or a woman? Well, it could be either. Uh, we, we need some context to determine that, or Jordan, or something like that. There's, there's names that are used for men and women. They're not specific. Now, in the, in the Greek language, it's a bit different than our situation, as there are endings that we don't have and the like. But it's, that at least gets us kind of understanding the idea. Grudem and Piper, in the book Rediscovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, make a strong case that the reading should be Junius. A man, with the A-S, like Silas or Sylvanus, that type of idea. But there's also strong support for reading Junia, as we find here, that she is a woman. The next issue is, do we read, as our text reads here, well-known to the apostles? The Greek text could be read, well-known as apostles. And so you see the problem. Is this a man or a woman? Is this an individual who's an apostle or known to the apostles? You see the difference. This is the debate. 
So those driven by feminist ideology get bright eyes here, and they argue that Junia is a female apostle exercising authority alongside men in the church of Jesus Christ. Well, she may well have been a woman, but not in this sense that these interpreters argue, that she exercised authority over men. Let's take the word apostle. I think there's some answer in that. The word apostle is used in more than one way. When you get to Revelation 21, remember the apostles there? Where, where do we find them? Their names are written on the foundation stones of the eternal city. There's not 13. There's not 14, 15, 16, or 17. There's just 12. And I assume one of them's not the apostle Paul. He's a little bit more tough to say, but I don't think so. I think it's Matthias. I think that it's those 12. Forever. The apostles. But we know that Paul is also an apostle. As is James. As is Barnabas. As is potentially, from 1 Thessalonians 2, Silas and Timothy. And 1 Corinthians 15.7 speaks of others as apostles. So here's a different way of using the term. There's authority there, there's significance there, and yet they're not the 12 that will be on the foundation stones in the eternal city. And then there's a third way of using apostles, and that is used much more often in a non-technical sense. Epaphroditus in Philippians 2.25 is called an apostle. Titus and others in 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 23 are referred to as apostles. We find here, as for Titus, he's my partner and fellow worker for your benefit, and as for our brothers, they are messengers. Now, the ESV translates that at messengers, but it's the same word, apostles. There's really no one arguing that these are all apostles as we understand them. There are not many who are arguing that. Some do. But we see here, it's a, it's a non-technical use of the term. So if Junia was indeed a woman, if she was indeed identified here as an apostle, I would think that it would be very similar to what we find here, apostle in a non-technical sense. So what is seen and presented as a slam dunk of women exercising authority over men in the church is nothing of the sort. I think there's very good possibility, although, again, many would nobly argue that this is a man, but I think there's very good possibility that it is a woman and that she is a messenger of the church. Indeed, might be the one carrying this uh, letter itself. We might use as illustration the word shepherd. How many shepherds are there of the church of Eden Baptist? Well, we'd say in one sense there's only one. Right? There's one chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. He is all of our shepherd, and there's only one. But if we use the word shepherd, we might use it in a different sense and say there are shepherds in the church. That is, there are pastors in the church, and that's what we mean in that context. But we could also say, I could say that, that a woman in our church, a member of our church, is a shepherd of souls. Now, if I said that, I wrote that in a letter, she, I commend her to you, she's traveling to San Francisco, take her into the church, she's a good woman, she's a shepherd of souls. If I said that, the pastor in San Francisco would not read that, knowing me and knowing our, our saying we're of the same mind, he wouldn't read that and say, oh, she's a pastor in the church, in an official sense. He'd say, she shepherds souls, as we all should. Does that make sense? So I think here, apostles being used that way, not an apostle, her name's not going to be in the foundation stones of the eternal city, not an apostle as Paul is, but a messenger, a sent one, officially sent by the church to represent the cause of Christ here in Rome for this moment as a patron. All right, we will, as I promise, move a lot faster. Take heart. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. What's interesting that we can't catch is there were names were given to, to indicate status. These first two were slaves or former slaves. That would have been understood immediately by those in that culture. 
Verse 10, greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Belong to the family probably means as slaves. Probably not family members. It could be, but the way that phrase is used in Greek, that probably means that they were slaves. Verse 11, greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those kinsmen, again being Jewish man. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Again, if we're consistent, probably slaves in the home. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Probably sisters. It was common to give siblings names that came from the same Greek root word. This word means delicate or dainty, but they weren't afraid of the work. They were workers for Christ. By the way, I've never met a Tryphena or Tryphosa, just suggesting it might be a nice name for a, for a child somewhere. <laughs> I, I don't know. They, she'd have trouble with spelling, but uh, interesting names, aren't they? Greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. There it is again, to work hard. Do you work hard in the Lord? Would that be said of you? Here is a church member who's a hard worker. It's a beautiful commendation, isn't it? Just to be thought of in those terms. Do you get tired carrying the weight of ministry? I know I talk to some of you and you say, oh, yeah, I get weary. Well, know that you're on the right track. He looks at these individuals and says they're hard workers. Sometimes we wonder if it's worth it. The work of Christ's church is work. It's supposed to be hard. Be encouraged. Christ takes joy in those who serve him with zeal, Titus chapter 2. And these individuals did as hard workers. Greet the beloved Persis, the work who worked hard. Verse 13, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. And I doubt that Rufus was that 45-year-old guy playing video games in his mom's basement. I don't think that's it. She was likely widowed, and he probably was caring for her in his home. But again, what a beautiful line. Uh, Greet his mother who has been a mother to me. This woman in some way had come to know the Apostle Paul and had mothered her. Probably had cooked for her. Probably had cared for for him. Probably had cared for him in some way. And he acknowledges that necessary partnership between them. Verse 14, greet Syncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. The brothers who are with them may be a house church. Most of these names, slaves or former slaves. Verse 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. He's come up with all the names he can think of, all the people that in the gospel web have connected with each other through the years, and so now he covers it all. Greet Everybody greet everybody. Greet one another with a holy kiss. That was cultural way of greeting, of a warm greeting in that time, a kiss on the cheek, whether missed or actually planted, but that was a way it was done to greet one another. And I think the equivalent might be a handshake, might be a hug, might be a, a hand on the arm. But there's a, there's a touching here, there's a warmth here. We are family, Paul says, and so greet one another. And all the churches around me, these churches I started, these churches I've ministered to, they send greetings to you. Paul now balances his labors to unite the church by reminding them not to include some people among them. Thirdly, he unlinks, in a sense, the Roman church from false teachers by way of warning. Verse 17, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Remember how he talked about the strong and the weak, to receive one another, to love one another, to build one another up, even when our consciences differ, even when we have different ideas of how the Christian life should look. But there's people who teach false doctrine, you're to have a completely different orientation to them. Avoid them. Don't welcome them in. Don't participate with them. Don't fellowship with them as they peddle false doctrine. False doctrine is a cancer that will kill a church. The only answer is to cut it out. Now, he's not talking about legitimate doctrinal differences, but about false teachers. And why is he saying this? Verse 18, 
For, here's the reason, such persons do not serve our Lord Christ. They serve a different Lord. They're not teaching the true doctrine of Jesus. Then they're, they're serving some other master. You, you can't have fellowship with them. And, secondly, by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Not only do they deny Christ, they're going to fool people. Naive people are going to be drawn into what they're saying, so you must avoid them. Verse 19, For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent to what is evil. Perhaps the most difficult verse in this chapter to understand, with all the challenges that we've found already, But I think he's drawing some analogy between you can't be naive with false teachers. You've got to see them. You've got to recognize them and resist them. But there is a sense in which it's virtuous to be naive, and that's with respect to evil. So with respect to good, be virtuous. Follow Christ. Be faithful. But with respect to evil, you don't need to know everything about sin. To avoid it. Just avoid it. Stay out of it. Don't flirt with it. Don't read that stuff. Don't talk about those things that are going to draw you into sinful practices. Just avoid that. It's okay to be naive on some things. But be wise about the truth of God. I think that's what he's saying. Verse 20, And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, There's certainly a connection there to the false teachers, but I think certainly also a larger end-time concept. Satan has been crushed, will ultimately be crushed. False teachers will not prevail. The church of Christ will not be destroyed. The Lord is in heaven, risen and reigning, and there are churches that are faithful to His Word and striving to order their lives according to His Lordship. Jesus is going to win. Not Satan. Never forget it. But turn away from those popular teachers that take you away from the truth of Christ. And then Paul finally links his team to the Roman church by sending their greetings on. Verse 21, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sisipater, my kinsmen, my Jewish colleagues and my team that's with me, probably helping him to convey the money onto the Jerusalem church that's now his next task. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. That is not I authored this letter, but I'm the scribe. I'm the one who wrote it down, and my hand is killing me, but hi, how are you doing? I send my greetings on. It's a kind of wonderful word, isn't it? And Gaius, who is a host to me and to the whole church. I don't know But I suspect the church in Corinth is meeting in the home of Gaius and Paul is living there. I've been in this spot in another country on more than one occasion. A larger home where the church comes to gather and where travelers of Christian faith and gospel enterprise find housing. That's probably Gaius providing for Paul in Corinth before he leaves for Jerusalem. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus greet you as well. That amazing statement that brings us to this point of application. And bear with me just for a moment further. Notice there the city treasurer. Now that's a high position. That's a place of that's, that's a position of, of, of trust. And responsibility. As I mentioned, I don't know if I gave the number, but there's as many as 10 slaves or freedmen that are part of this, and and maybe one or two women as well, whose names uh, indicate that they were slaves, or they might have been freed, but they were at least um, in slavery when they were named. And so it, it just reminds us of the diversity and the unifying power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have in this list Jews and Gentiles united as brothers and sisters in Christ. They were as divided as any two kinds of people have ever been in the history of humanity. And here they are in Rome gathering together. 
Jew and Gentile. There are men and women serving side by side, equally commended for their hard work and the importance of their work in the gospel, initiating, giving, pouring out their resources and their energies to serve the cause of Christ. Men and women together. There's the wealthy using their resources to advance Christ's cause. Those that are opening up their homes and using money as gifts to help people carry on their way. And then there are these slaves and former slaves who are most of them probably eking out a living to put a little bit of money into the cause of Christ would have been a sacrifice for some of these people. And they're living together. It is really clear to a sociologist in the first century looking at this group that there is something binding these people together that's weird. These people don't get along anywhere else. Jews and Gentiles... Rich and poor, men and women working together this way in partnership. This is strange. And of course, the church itself in its constitution and in its unity is pointing to the risen Christ. There is a Savior in heaven who is bringing people together after His name, for His glory, for eternity. And all of these human divisions are blown to shreds. People of God, we are in the most thrilling enterprise in the world. There is no more thrilling enterprise than the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the formation of churches that can say, we are the body of Christ. The outcropping of that body here in this place. And through the world, the risen Savior, saving a people from sin and hell, saving a people for His name from Satan's clutches. He is saving selfish, sensuous idolaters out of their misery. He's rescuing lawless, hopeless rebels for His glory and their eternal joy. And you, believer, are part of that mission, working in this worldwide web of gospel enterprising people. For this short season of life that we have, this moment on the stage of gospel proclamation, for this short stretch, it's our time to participate in the deliverance of souls from the bondage of sin, from the future of hell, we as Christ's people. And it is an energy-sapping resource-costing enterprise. The risen Christ knows this, and He rejoices to have us work with Him. To accomplish this work together as we share the gospel, as we take the gospel, as we give of our resources, as we join together in partnership, connecting with people throughout this world to say that Jesus Christ is risen He is Savior, He is coming again, and He will reign for eternity over His people who love Him and seek His return. What joy is ours, and it is energy sapping. Think of this, I'm not trying to make these points parallel, but whether they're a description or a work, think of what we see here. A servant of the church, a gospel patron, providing assistance to others. Fellow workers working with the Apostle Paul, risking their lives, putting their lives on the line for the gospel. It's not those who housed churches, hard workers, 6 and 12, fellow prisoners, verse 7, proven minister, a servant, mothering care, a scribe, a courier, I should put here, Travelers, you couldn't send it airmail. It had to be hand-delivered across the ancient world. Housing others. It's work. It's hard. It's enterprise. 
And because we are serving the risen Christ, there's no greater work in this world for any of us to be part of. How invested are you in things that are going to burn? How invested are you in things that will collapse when you die? How rooted is your life into the temporal and ultimately meaningless? The simple mundane acts of everyday life are transformed when we see them as part of the larger picture of serving the cause of Christ. And we can lift the mundane out of the mundane and set it in heaven. Remember the memory verse this week. We are seated in the heavenly places in Christ. We're seated there. Link your life day by day, moment by moment, the simple things of life into that eternal seat. And you will live a life of joy and purpose and know it. Whatever work the Lord gives you to do. Let's bow. We thank you, Lord, for your grace. I pray for those who know not Christ as Savior, and I pray that they would see the wonder of this message. For indeed, as we talk about the deliverance of the gospel, we talk about them. The message is for sinners. And I pray that there would be those who see that and respond. Lord, how would you commend this church? Who would you commend in this church as having a life that is synchronized with the work of the risen Savior? We thank you for your love and your mercies to us. We thank you for the joy of serving you. But I pray that this church would see more and more who enter the ranks of those who are pursuing the spread of the gospel, the kingdom of God, and investing their money, their time, their gifts, their abilities in the cause of Jesus Christ. Help us to that end, we pray. Move us for the glory of your name. Through Jesus, we ask it. Amen.